right. 85 episodes in. It took 85 whole episodes. This is the first time I have no idea how to start the podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> you always have something brewing back there. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, things are not great. <laughs> yeah, full transparency because, you know, we tell you guys everything. Uh, Rowan's been going through it the last few weeks. Yeah, I... I I guess I don't know yet how different my audio is going to sound, but um, if it does sound different, it's because I'm somewhere else. Um, I had to leave my home very quickly because things got very scary feeling very fast. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a lot of wonderful friends who help me out, but things are not great. <laughs> no, I would say very much uh, in flux would be... How I describe it. Um, unstable. Actually, oh my god, okay. Tracy, only you will find this funny. Only you will get my humor. Okay, great. Okay, so I was at the pharmacy, like the CVS or Walgreens. I don't even remember right. one of those. The day before yesterday. And I was in a tizzy mm-hmm. because I had to in my mind, had to buy waterproof mascara. Okay. Because I don't buy it and I don't own it. And I was like, if things are going to be this bad, I still want to wear mascara. Yes. And I don't want (laughs) to cry it off. So I need waterproof mascara now. (laughs) I can so empathize with that feeling of Everything is terrible and falling apart around me, and I know I'm going to cry about it, so I'm going to hyperfixate on the th- on a small problem <laughs> I think I can solve so that I feel like I've won in some aspect. When I realized what I was doing, and also the fact that apparently my focus was having long lashes whilst yeah. being in distress, um, I laughed like an absolute maniac <laughs> in yeah. the pharmacy and truly, there was a guy who was like an aisle or two over shopping for whatever he was. And he kind of like was tall enough to look over the aisle at me. <laughs> he like quickly glanced and like quickly <laughs> did not make eye contact. I was on the phone with you, I think yesterday. And I definitely there were a few times where, where I said something or I, I talked about the stuff that was going on and you just began cackling. Like, maniacally, there was no other way your body knew how to react. You were just cackling. Oh, yeah. I'm such a laugh when it's bad, like, smile when you're upset person. Mm -hmm. Uh, It ends up looking a little predatory. Um, Like, (laughs) good. Frighten everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the funny part about this mascara is, like, you know, whatever stupid Google article led me to... the one wet and wild i have one from wet and wild um it's awesome it's so good wet and wild makes great makeup it's the best mascara i've ever had but here's the thing it is so waterproof Uh that the other day when i was trying to take it off Uh i started crying because i couldn't get it off and that was the last straw god the saddest full circle moment i've ever heard Oh, it was – I. if I had any sense, I'd be embarrassed. <laughs> no, you shouldn't be embarrassed at all. It's that moment when you just – you can feel every interview is holding on by a single thread and then it's the <laughs> tiniest thing. 
Do you ever see that TikTok where it's the glass door on the ground and someone drops just a tiny petal and the whole door from top to bottom just <gasps> shatters? No. Oh, I should send it to you because I have a feeling it's exactly how you're feeling right now. The version of that that I've seen on social media is it's panels of just like a little simple cartoon character going through things that are bad, like, I don't know, a car yeah. wreck and death and all these things. And then the final panel and they're like smiling and happy. And then the final mm -hmm. panel is them trying to pull a paper towel out of one of those public paper towel dispensers mm -hmm. and it rips and the character just <laughs> is done. <laughs> Oh, hi, I'm Rowan Hall, and I apparently cannot cry off this waterproof mascara. <laughs> hi, I'm Tracy Harrison, and I don't have any mascara on whatsoever because I just came from physical therapy, and that's not a place where you want mascara. You gotta prioritize those long and luscious lashes. There were a few women there who had, like, full-on outfits and hair and makeup and everything. I was like, you know what? You women are more powerful than me and I respect you. Yeah, I don't know. I think as a me, if I'm trying to feel powerful but don't have the time or the energy, it's got to be the brows and the eyelashes. They are your signature. They, they are. are. They are the thing, I guess. Oh, wait. Also, uh, this is Willing and Fables, the podcast that brings you original retellings <laughs> and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. <laughs> Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the podcast, consider joining us on Patreon, or sending us a listener legend like we read last week, or following us on social media, at Willing and Fable, anywhere you find us. Tracy, can I do the thing? Oh yeah, absolutely, go ahead. Or you can assemble all your best friends and put on amazing outfits, and become an army, and smash the patriarchy. Hey, but whatever you do, we're just so glad you're here. We appreciate you. <laughs> oh, I love it. Love to see it. All right, Tracy, what on the God's green earth are we doing? Today, we are discussing perhaps the most famous Mesoamerican god of all time. At least, if you've heard of a Mesoamerican god, this is probably one you've heard of. Quetzalcoatl. I need you to know that you and I have been in a game of chicken that you <laughs> didn't know what was happening, where I have wanted Quetzalcoatl to be covered on this podcast, but I get so scared of pronouncing these beautiful names. And so I have been, for the last three seasons, quietly just a... Uh, Hoping and waiting and, nudging, and making this nudging. available. <laughs> Thank goodness. I really needed you to do it because I never would. I get so worried. <laughs> I had so much fun researching this. But yes, there are a lot of Nahuatl words, which is the language spoken by the Aztecs. So there's Spanish and there's Nahuatl. And I'm going to pronounce all of them incorrectly and I apologize in advance. But listen, you at least have a basis of understanding. Uh, you've been to a couple uh, countries. I've only ever traveled abroad to countries that don't speak English as their native language. My game when I travel abroad is, of course, I don't want to be the American who just assumes everyone's mm -hmm. going to speak English. So I will aggressively prepare the phrases that are necessary for a tourist. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that is as far as my knowledge extends and as soon as the trip is over 
my brain is like, oh, you can't have that information anymore. Oh, like, no, absolutely. please, please. Could I please just remember how to ask for ice in every language of the places I've been, please? Oh, 100%. My problem is that I got good enough in Portuguese, at least mimicking the accent, that I could walk into a place and say like, good evening, can I have some tea? And they start rapidly speaking Portuguese to me. And I was like, uh-oh, I flew too close to the sun. Uh, no. uh, and I have to beg them to speak English. My first phrase is always, I am so sorry. I speak English. Please forgive me. <laughs> Some version <laughs> of that. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Quetzalcoatl, the serpent god of Mesoamerica. The thing to know about Quetzalcoatl is that he is an old god, a very, very old god. And so his story has been told and retold and told again, written and rewritten thousands of times over the centuries. This means that there isn't exactly one consistent canon or set of myths that we can attribute to Quetzalcoatl. At least there are none that survive to the present day. So what we know about Quetzalcoatl comes from thousands of stories and interpretations collected over 2,000 years. Because Quetzalcoatl is so old, does this figure also have age incorporated into its identity? You know how some gods, no matter how old they are, they're still young children, or no matter how young they are, they're still old men, for example. Right. He's just a, a man. Age doesn't really play a, a huge factor into his story. Okay. So Quetzalcoatl, or the Plumed Serpent, was one of the most important gods in ancient Mesoamerica. A mix of bird and rattlesnake, his name is a combination of the Nahuatl words Quetzal, the emerald-plumed bird, and Coatl, serpent. Quetzalcoatl was the god of winds and rain and the creator of the world and humanity. He appears in many ancient Mesoamerican codices, sculptures, and reliefs. However, his appearance can change drastically depending on the region, era, and context. In sculptures adorning temples throughout ancient Mexico, he generally appeared as a plumed serpent, although sometimes he had human-like features as well. In the codices, he was generally more human-like, and I have a picture here, Rowan, of Quetzalcoatl in his human form, depicted in the Codex Borgia. Oh, this is this is a really cool image because it's colorized. Uh, mm-hmm. So, okay, I think this is the most familiar kind of idea that folks who haven't seen a lot of Mesoamerican art will understand. You know how in very famous ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics folks are kind of turned sideways so you get more of their figure uh, in profile mm -hmm. but not all the way. This in terms of body shape has that going on. Um, right, right. Our, our friend is looking in one direction and but you still get a lot of his body as if you would see it from the front. And the adornments that Quetzalcoatl is wearing are so intricate. There's a bird head element on part of his, I think, garment. Mm -hmm. There's this really fantastic headpiece that has a portion of it that makes me think of sun's rays, but you could also uh, liken it to the spokes on a wheel. It's kind of that. Yeah, absolutely. Shape. I really am interested in the fact that this is Quetzalcoatl's human form, but mm -hmm. his face is not fully trying to be classic human profile like his uh i think it's his mouth that's a bit of a beak still 
You can see the shape of a nose, but then the mouth definitely looks sort of like a beak, but then you can also see fangs like a snake. And I love the combination of both elements and one physical feature. Also, talking about eyebrows, absolutely oh, fantastic. <laughs> crushing the game. <laughs> so then, can I describe this next image? Yes, I was going to ask you to describe the next one. This is a modern piece by uh, Paul Moody. This is awesome. It For any of our D&D players who are familiar, or even just uh, like fantasy reading players who are familiar with the classic image of dragon sitting on top of horde where the dragon is huge and whatever else is in the image puts it into scale by being mm -hmm. so shockingly mm -hmm. small quetzalcoatl it's this massive serpent who has feathers over its entire body and it has that dark green on top but then red and yellow underneath curving up a pyramid um mesoamerican pyramid and the fangs in this are genuinely terrifying in the scale of the image. And the face is equally as adorned as the human face in the other mm -hmm. image. So one thing that really excites me exploring gods that are less talked about is in America, which is a fundamentally Christian nation, no matter how much folks would like to believe that it's not, there is kind of this... Maybe it's un maybe it's spoken, but I think unspoken rule that you don't get to decide what God, God capital G, looks like. Mm -hmm. And then in so many other cultures and religions, there is kind of a consensus about what a God might look like, and yet it can vary. But still, when everybody sees this image, no matter where they are, they know. And it genuinely makes me excited. <laughs> I want to it makes me want to travel and see yes. what people have chose to change or adapt or what what diffused. You made such good points that I I totally agree because I it's part of why I love traveling too is learning about other people and their cultures and the way that that they prioritize what they choose to tell in story or keep consistent through a canon. Which is really interesting with Quetzalcoatl because as I mentioned earlier, he's extremely old. In order to really get to know who Quetzalcoatl is, we actually have to go all the way back to the dawn of Mesoamerican civilization to the ancient Olmecs. The Olmec civilization lasted from around 1200 to 400 BC and had a profound impact on all the cultures that would follow it. They had images and statues of a feathered serpent on their temples dating back as early as 900 BC. Although this creature was not necessarily any one singular deity, but likely a depiction of a creature. However, this feathered serpent eventually became a ubiquitous figure in Mesoamerican pantheons. Known by the Nahua and the Aztecs as Quetzalcoatl, god of the wind, learning, dawn, and the arts, the Yucatec Maya knew him as Kukulkan, a god combined with the historical ruler of Chichen Itza. While the Lacandon Maya also knew him as Kukulkin, but to them he was an evil deity and a pet of the sun god, and the Kichi Maya referred to him as Kukumats, the creator god and god of wind and rain. Imagine having Quetzalcoatl as your pet. I, I know! <laughs> I think that one's so interesting. In that one, he's just this evil, nasty little pet. And then other ones, he's the creator god. And in other ones, he's the god of wisdom and rain. He's but it's all the same feathered serpent based on the Olmec. Hearing you talk about the Olmec civilization, which I didn't know about before, is one of those moments where once you know about ancient 
ancient Greece, like ancient yes. to the ancients <laughs> Greece, you can never unknow and it seems yeah. so apparent once you're integrated into it. Now, I'm sitting here going, of course there were civilizations before the Aztecs. But that's the farthest back we went in school. So it's the farthest back my brain went. <laughs> they absolutely do not teach it in school. And the Olmecs are, you know, 900, 1200 BC. But the Aztecs, they don't even come around until way later. We're going to talk about it. The, actually, the Nahua civilizations come before the Aztecs, which we'll get to in a moment. In terms of Quetzalcoatl, as a general trend, the feathered serpent god across Mesoamerica was usually associated with wind, rain, and at least somehow tangentially related to the sun god. Pretty much every Mesoamerican culture had their own feathered serpent based on that original god found centuries before. That makes him one of the only gods to span across many different cultures in Mesoamerica over centuries of cultural change. So, 1,700 years before the Aztecs and 900 years before the Nahua civilizations began, an unknown civilization or tribe began to build a city known as Teotihuacan. In Teotihuacan, they built the Pyramid of the Sun in 300 BC. Fast forward way later, about mm, 750 years later, to 450 AD. We are dealing with so much time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I know. You. No, we are. We are absolutely dealing with so much time. We started hundreds of years BC. Now we're at 450 AD. The civilization that existed in Teotihuacan was at the height of its power, with references to the city and its people found all over Mesoamerica. The population was estimated to be at least 125,000, oh, which wow. would make it the sixth largest city in the world at the time. However, around the 6th century, the population of Teotihuacan started declining, and by the 7th century, there seems to be some sort of uprising or fighting happening in the city as the houses of the rulers are burned and several statues are shattered and deliberately scattered. Shortly after this, the entire city is completely abandoned in the 7th century. You know, this time thing, I think my brain is sticking on it, honestly, because I'm just having a moment with time because it's 2022 and the global pandemonium just won't quit. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to contextualize it for myself m makes me think about the first time that I heard about you know, woolly mammoths roamed the earth while the pyramids were still being built, referring to the Egyptian pyramids. Right. And I just remember my brain breaking. And because you and I in our school had European history mm -hmm. taught to us oh, only about a thousand times, you kind of get used to hearing the facts and it doesn't matter if you contextualize the time because you just know it by rote. Right. And then hearing this is like, okay, actually consider how much is changing. Entire civilizations are born and collapse and still Quetzalcoatl continues. It's crazy. We started with the Olmecs and then the civilization that built Teotihuacan and then Teotihuacan collapses. And we don't really know why, except that it was probably infighting caused by climate shifting um 
and droughts that happened around the same time. We know there were droughts around 500 AD. That's happening now. It is happening now. Maybe we'll get a great god out of it. Who knows? Or an insurrection. <laughs> you know, um, it's not unlikely, but we're going to fast forward to the Aztecs who discovered the city of Teotihuacan centuries after it was abandoned. They found the remains of the temples, pyramids, houses, and artifacts such as murals and statues. These artifacts give us a glimpse into the religious practices of those who lived in the city during the height of its power. Some of these deities include the great goddess of Teotihuacan, or the Teotihuacan spider woman, the storm god, the old god, the netted jaguar, the fat god, the flay god, and the one we'll be discussing today, the feathered serpent. Nah, I'm here for a spider woman, fat god, and flayed god. <laughs> flayed god is vaguely terrifying. Spider woman is also terrifying, but in a way that I'm like, yes, spider woman, great goddess <laughs> yeah. of Teotihuacan, you get it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I should have included pictures for you, but I was I was excited about so many things. I was like, I cannot go on a huge tangent of the gods of Teotihuacan. <laughs> you know you'd never get me back. <laughs> I would never get myself back. We both know it. <laughs> So there's a statue of Quetzalcoatl that can be found on the third largest pyramid in Teotihuacan, now known as the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. This statue is seen as the first reference to Quetzalcoatl, which, you know, eventually the Aztecs will call him Quetzalcoatl, but at the time we don't know what he was called by these people other than the Feathered Serpent. But I have a picture here for you of that very temple on which you can see the Feathered Serpent. So it's a temple, and would I be assuming correctly if I was assuming it was going up in a sort of pyramid shape, wider at the base, mm -hmm. small mm -hmm. at the top? So in this image, kind of ha mostly obscured um, by being out of frame, but just in the corner, there are steps that are so neat. Like, time didn't do a darn thing to these steps. No. <laughs> uh, and, and just past that, there's a step pyramid meaning you know mm -hmm. it's going up in kind of bits and there are the carvings on the outside are so detailed which surprises me specifically because the elements exist right. and i would think that all of these details like teeth and feathers and just the noses and the mouths would just get knocked off you would think but it's looking great and you can still visit it today it's so cool to see all of this detail so intact because it looks like the serpent figure, the mouth is hollowed out. So the teeth mm -hmm. are individual even on the inside. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just not in a position to see things that old that are so intact very often. That's what made researching this so exciting. There's so much of it that still lives and breathes today. The other thing that's interesting me is just the stone is such a rich golden color mm -hmm. some science person will know because what minerals it is but imagining this temple in that golden color or even let's say it was a, a bit whiter and the gold came with age but that is just such a bright vivid contrast to all of the green that I can just kind of see in this picture. Imagine it at sunset. Yeah, exactly. In the, in the kind of golden rays of sunset. Yeah. It would be incredible. So in the 1300s, after the fall of this city, 
the Nahua founded Tenochtitlan, which would become the capital of the Aztec Empire. At this point, an alliance was formed between the three major tribes, organized by a man named Tlaka Elel, who pulled an Akhenaten and totally revamped the Nahuatl religion. He elevated the once low-level sun god, Huitzilopochtli, to a full-scale solar deity and patron of the city. This gives us a clear origin story for Huitzilopochtli, in which we see Quetzalcoatl as a character, but it doesn't tell us much about Quetzalcoatl himself, likely because he was already a major part of the religion by this point. Quetzalcoatl became codified by the Aztecs likely sometime during the 14th century when the Aztec culture really grew in power. He was seen by them as the god of learning, science, agriculture, crafts, and the arts. He also invented the calendar and was associated with the star Venus. However, as I mentioned, he was likely part of the pantheon centuries before this. I get so excited hearing that there are gods of things like crafts and Mm -hmm. arts because it – you know, listen, I have tried to – train myself out of being like, "Uh uh-huh, if I were reincarnated, I was on the Titanic. Like, no. If I existed in the past, I was an unwashed mass on the lowest level of society. That's where I'm going to imagine myself. And so any place that has a gods of arts and architecture and learning and the sciences, you have to think that even if it wasn't accessible for the lowest member of society, it was aspirational. And I personally don't know very much about Aztec culture, but it is really exciting to read that that is there. Mm-hmm. Yes, he absolutely was seen as the god of very specifically arts and crafts and science and learning. And he's somewhat a combination of a trickster god, but also a god who really wanted to help humanity through those means, which mm. don't worry. We will get into. But we know that he was part of the Pantheon for centuries before we started seeing stories in the 1300s because we hear stories of Quetzalcoatl being part of other gods' myths. These stories don't go out of their way to explain why we should care about Quetzalcoatl at all. And that's likely because it was already widely known that he was a major part of the Pantheon. Oral traditions! Yes! This kind of thing happens when gods become so ubiquitous in their culture that people just stop writing about them. Because everyone already knows about them. Which is super cool, but also super frustrating from a historical (laughs) perspective. Because it means instead of a clear-cut written origin story, we just get a mess of fragmented stories that often reference facts that we no longer know, but were likely very well known at the time by everyone. Yeah, folks who don't read about gods all the time like we do, probably the closest thought would be ancient Greece. There's a lot of ancient Greek texts where no one is explaining who's up to what because everyone just knew. Right. It's like the whole idea of Persephone's name is bringer of death and we're all like, hey, why? And they're like, hmm, you'll never know. (laughs) You'll never know because we all knew and we just didn't write it down, sucker. (laughs) We all knew why she was really scary, but... But we're not going to tell you. <laughs> Thanks. So you might be asking yourself, Rowan, why was this god, why this feathered serpent, why did he become so popular? Why this god? Why this feathered serpent? Why did he become <laughs> so popular? I love the way your mind works. Well, <laughs> the answer is most likely symbolism. Since Quetzalcoatl could fly, he was inherently divine. 
But the idea of a flying snake is somewhat of a contradiction, unless you're imagining dragons, but don't. Because since the <laughs> snake half of him was inherently earth-based, that makes him a symbol of duality. Mm. He can fly and he's based on the earth. He's divine and he's human. And we humans love duality. So you ready to dive into a few of the myths that we do know of surrounding Quetzalcoatl? Yes. The Yucatec Maya have a version of his origin story in which a snake is born to a human family and his older sister immediately recognizes him as the feathered serpent god. This means that when the story was told, the feathered serpent god already existed in the broader cultural miasma. Mm -hmm. That makes this less of an origin story and more of just a fun tale about Quetzalcoatl. Thoughtco describes a possible origin story of Quetzalcoatl based on the Toltec legend. Their civilization, which dominated central Mexico from approximately 900 to 1150 AD, was founded by a great hero, Che Actil Topiltzin Quetzalcoatl. This is likely an aspect of Quetzalcoatl based on a historical figure. According to Toltec and Maya accounts, Che Actil Topiltzin Quetzalcoatl lived in Tula for a while before a dispute with the warrior class over human sacrifice led to his departure. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. That's a big deal. And not actually, I think, for the reason people will think that I'm saying that, because it's human sacrifice. No, but that's like a big religious idea to go against or for. Mm -hmm. He went against it and eventually headed east, settling in Chichen Itza. The god Quetzalcoatl definitely has a link of some sort to this historical figure, but it may be that Cheactyl Topiltzin Quetzalcoatl was deified into Quetzalcoatl the god. It might have been that he assumed the mantle of an already existing divine entity. Hmm. In Aztec mythology, Quetzalcoatl was the son of the primordial androgynous god Ometitl. <sighs> and he was the brother of Tezcatlipoca and Huitzilopochtli and Xipitotec. A lot of names that I'm sure I'm pronouncing very wrong. So Tracy is saying that because I'm <laughs> making a face, reading, and trying to make sure that I have their family tree broken down correctly in my head. Right. So in the Aztec mythology, there's the primordial androgynous god, Ometitol. Primordial androgynous god. Amazing, right? The primordial gods get the coolest stories and the coolest aspects. Yeah, gender is for you, mortals. <laughs> right. So good. <laughs> so, from Ometitol, we get Quetzalcoatl, Tezcatlipoca, Huitzilopochtli, and Xipitotec. You with me? Yeah, guys, Tracy just said that twice for me and me alone. If you're already <laughs> on it, I'm so sorry. <laughs> there are other legends whose origins I couldn't pinpoint, but I believe may be the Nahua who posited that Quetzalcoatl was the son of the goddess Kimalma. And this is probably the Che Actel Topiltzin Quetzalcoatl, the historical figure that kind of became deified. And you'll see why in a moment. Because in these stories, which totally vary, it, some say that Mixcoatl, the Aztec god of the hunt, impregnated the goddess Kimalma by shooting an arrow from his bow. And in this legend... Mixcoddle shot at Kimalma for spurning his advances, but she caught the arrows in her hand, which is how she got her name, which means shield hand. Oh my gosh. I know. Catching arrows in your hand. First of all, badass, just to reach out, 
boom, catch the arrows in your hand. Incredible. You saying no to someone and then they try to impregnate you with an arrow? <sighs> yeah, it's it's messed up, for sure. But she she came along and said absolutely not, sir. <laughs> Yes, she did. She did then turn around and say absolutely yes, because Kamalma later married Mix Coddle, but they were unable to conceive. So after praying at an altar to Quetzalcoatl and swallowing a precious stone, emerald or jade, depending on the version of the tale, Kimalma became pregnant with Tulpiltzin Quetzalcoatl, the man who would become Lord of the Toltecs. Okay. Question. You're going to have to go with me on this journey for a hot second. I will always. I always wonder when I hear about historical figures reaching kind of like a godlike status or being enmeshed with the gods, mm -hmm. if the only reason we are inhibited from doing that currently is because media is king and religion is separate. So when we have these celebrities who are so powerful and so well-known, you know, the Elon Musk's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing that stops them from being deified is because they top out at, like, celebrity media. Right. And the right. we don't have stories that we all tell our children and are raised on and we've all agreed are the thing that we're consuming and raising to importance and repeating. So they can't be plugged into it. And living in a world where celebrity is so important makes me wish so badly that I could see what that looked like for other cultures and if that right. is why they are eventually pulled into those stories of gods. Yeah. I And I think some of it's also probably self-propelled. You know, you call yourself a god. Think of the pharaohs always associating themselves with gods. I think that helps with it. So we should start now. Yeah, we'll just start. We are gods. We are gods. <laughs> the two of us, we're gods. <laughs> <laughs> in post-classical Nahuatl tradition, Quetzalcoatl is also the creator of the cosmos, along with either his brother Tetzcatlipoca or Huitzilopochtli. And in the story, after waiting for 600 years, the aged couple who gave birth to Quetzalcoatl instructed Quetzalcoatl to create the world. In some versions of the myth, he and Tetzcatlipoca repeatedly fight each other, and as a consequence, the four ages are created and destroyed with each successive battle between the two gods, which is why the Aztec believed that they were in the fifth age, or the age known as the fifth sun, because mm. it was the fifth time the sun had been born and destroyed again. Mm. I know. Very interesting. We can do a whole other episode on the Aztec calendars and their broader yeah. pantheon. I, I couldn't. I had to keep it... <laughs> restricted into what i dove into but i really wanted to dive more into that fifth sun different age thing yeah the aztec calendar is fascinating and so accurate incredible that incredible they knew there were some instances where people in mesoamerica could tell that their instruments were off by decimal points and they knew it they also just knew they couldn't get more accurate without bigger or better or more efficient machinery it's insane even though that is an experience that scientists and great minds have right now, it still feels mind-boggling to me because it's all stone. <laughs> it's incredible. There's no industrial revolution helping them out to make mm -mm. things within the millimeter by machine. One of the coolest things I saw while I was at Machu Picchu, which is an, an Inca place, it's not Aztec, but there was this hole in the ground that was filled with water. 
And when you stood at a certain spot and looked into it, you could see a perfect reflection of the sky. Mm. And they talked to us and said this was likely one of the big theories of what Machu Picchu was, was that it was a university. And that is how they would study the stars, is you could sit and look into the water and study the stars as they moved across the sky without keeping your head tilted up the whole time. Yeah. Hey, guys, we're just going to make this more comfortable for you. Uh, look down instead of looking up, but you're going to get the same info. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and then just to see the way they carved the stones. I mean, they have perfect angles and tiny pieces fitting together. It was incredible. Right. Which means artisans who could do that must have been very valued. Mm-hmm. So back to Quetzalcoatl and the final creation myth. According to world history, in an alternative version of the creation myth, Quetzalcoatl and Tetzcatlipoca are more cooperative, and together they create the sun, the first man and woman, fire, and the rain gods. The pair of gods had created the earth and the sky when they transformed themselves into huge snakes and ripped into the female reptilian monster known as Chipactli. One part of her becoming the earth and the other the sky. Trees, plants, and flowers sprang from the dead creature's hair and skin, while springs and caves were made from her eyes and nose, and the valleys and mountains came from her mouth. In some versions of the story, the divine spirit of Chipakli was understandably upset to have lost her physical body in such a brutal attack, and the only way to appease her was through the sacrifice of blood and hearts. End quote. Ugh, we, I'm just so happy... To be back in uh, God territory, you know, we're doing right. It's been a minute since we've done an episode on a a God. And you get these stories about ripping monsters and heart sacrifices and skin turning into grass. And it just is so satisfying, like emotionally satisfying to have the stakes be that high. I think it's really interesting that the the in this story, the way the earth was created was through the violence of essentially two men against a woman. They ripped her body in half and then from her body sprung the earth. And it kind of reminds me of Tiamat, where once she was defeated, she was ripped apart and became the sky and the earth as well. There's something about women being defeated and ripped apart that translates into creation of the world. And I wonder if that's a like it's something to do with giving birth being such a brutal process that then to imagine giving birth to the world must be an even more brutal process. I have to think that's it because otherwise the grand council of all civilizations everywhere had to get together and kind of be like, no, really, <laughs> let's yeah. make this violent and uh, do it to the women. Uh, gods, cool, got it, good. Insert the this is aliens meme. It was all aliens. Oh, so much racism. But... But I don't know if you heard this in college, but I sure did. Uh, write what you know. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that means what a lot of people think it means. But that aside, people for all of forever have pulled from their actual experience to mm -hmm. write. And giving birth is brutal. Uh, hey, check out our Lysistrata episode. And imagining, imagining women creating any number of wonderful things including the earth makes me very i want to say comforted as a mm -hmm. woman who's hearing these stories i don't know yeah i i think it's a combination of comforting and unsettling for me the idea that in order to create the world so many 
different stories tell us that a woman must be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 an interesting combination. I like also when a pantheon like this one has female figures that have a very divine rage. Yes. To catch an arrow in your hand because it gives me permission to think of my rage when I am mistreated as kind of this divine, like, Mm -hmm. empowering rage. Yes. And that's why it's important to see yourself in story. That's why having an androgynous god, a gender Mm non-binary god, you know, all of these figures, even down to the movies, people want to see themselves. Because it can be empowering or comforting or what is the phrase? Bring comfort to the, the suffering and bring suffering to the comfortable. I love that. There's a version of that that does not involve suffering. I think it's like comfort and just like a step down from comfort. <laughs> like discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there is one big myth around Quetzalcoatl and it's about his descent into Mikdon, which is essentially the underworld. In this story, he's sent to remove some bones. However, the ruling gods of the underworld agree to give the bones only if Quetzalcoatl can blow a conch shell horn that has no holes in it. Obviously, this is meant to be an impossible task. However, Quetzalcoatl gets around the problem by having worms drill holes into the conch and putting bees inside to make it make sound. Quetzalcoatl also pretends to leave the underworld without the bones, declaring his intention to leave them where they are, whilst in actual fact, he steals them from the ruling gods of the underworld. Outraged by the deceit, they make a pit to entrap the trickster god. Quetzalcoatl does indeed fall into the pit and in so doing scatters the ill-gotten bones so that the male and female parts are mixed. Gathering up the bones, Quetzalcoatl escapes the pit and gives them to the great snake goddess to magically fashion them into people by mixing them with corn and some of Quetzalcoatl's blood. Some other versions of the story just say that when he falls into the pit, the bones get mixed up and his blood becomes a part of it and that's how we get humanity, so there's different versions, but Quetzalcoatl, among many other things, is also considered a creator god. Mm-hmm. Creation and destruction all mixed in one god are some of the coolest gods. No, and he's the god of knowledge, <laughs> which you know the nerd in me loves. <laughs> <laughs> We're such fangirls. <laughs> It is said that when the world was first created, Quetzalcoatl was angry that humans were subjugated by the other gods, and being a trickster, he decided to pose as a human and share his knowledge of art and science with humanity. The Center for Linguistic and Multicultural Studies describes Quetzalcoatl's arrival to the human world. They say that he wandered through many lands until he came upon Tolan, a place that is said to be located today within the state of Hidalgo in Mexico. When he arrived, they were offering a sacrifice in honor of his brother, Tetzcalipoca. And angered by this barbarity, Quetzalcoatl halted the execution. The priest who performed the sacrifice shouted angrily, and the sky turned gray with clouds that heralded a major storm with lightning and thunder. Quetzalcoatl calmed them down and assured them that while he was in the city, Tolan would flourish like no other. He then raised his hands to the sky and the winds began to blow, clearing away the clouds. From that moment on, men wanted to worship him as a deity, but he rejected any kind of luxury and invited them to live with humility and to learn with purity of soul. 
From then on, Tolan grew and prospered. The god in human form taught them to cultivate corn seeds, which at the time could only be found on the opposite side of a mountain from where they lived. In the story, he turned himself into an ant and followed the other ants across the mountain and brought back a kernel of corn to Tolan. He taught them to work with jade, gold, obsidian, how to dye cotton, the art of astronomy. He enriched their writing, promoted the worship of the gods, and forbade human sacrifices, teaching them self-sacrifice by pricking themselves with thorns instead. However, in the Codex Kimalpapoca, it is said that one day Quetzalcoatl was not feeling well and was coerced by his brother, Tetzcatlipoca, pretending to be a medicine man, into becoming drunk on pulque, which is alcohol made from the sap of agave, and his brother, pretending to be a medicine man, presented it to Quetzalcoatl as medicine. So Quetzalcoatl drank it, and got drunk, and began cavorting with his older sister, Quetzalpetlatl, a celibate priestess. In some stories, she is not his sister, but she's always referred to as a celibate priestess, and many academics conclude the passage implying incest between the two. The next morning, Quetzalcoatl, feeling shame and regret, had his servants build him a stone chest, adorn him in turquoise, and then laying in the chest, set himself on fire. His ashes rose into the sky, and his heart followed, becoming the morning star. That was a big week for him. So dramatic. So dramatic. I get making a, a very big mistake. He made a very big mistake. He then lit himself on fire and became a literal star? I'd kind of want that energy for myself. Um, I don't want that energy for you. Um, the drama. <clears throat> to be able to just throw your hands out and be that dramatic? It's got to be something satisfying in that. My understanding of gods in various pantheons is often... You know, this guy is having sex with his sister because who else is he going to do it with mm -hmm. um, that's also a god? And, uh, you know, maybe he's lighting himself on fire because maybe he'll be back tomorrow or in 100 years or time doesn't matter to him. And But I don't know that the people who were originally telling these stories thought that way. So I might be sitting here going, gods have infinite whatever so they can infinitely do whatever. Mm -hmm. And that might not be true. Right. So there's other versions of the story that instead of describing him as setting himself on fire, have him setting out to sea on a boat built out of snakes. Cool. I know. I had to include this. <laughs> they say he sailed towards the setting sun, promising the Toltecs to return to Tolan in the year Che Actal to avenge the betrayal. Coincidentally, that same pre-Hispanic year was the year 1519 the year when the first Spaniards arrived on the very coast by which Quetzalcoatl disappeared. No. We're going to get into this. No. According to some historians, the representations of Quetzalcoatl depict him as a tall and bearded white male. No. That's why it's discussed that this notable personage may have been, in fact, genuine, a Viking who reached the shores of the Gulf of Mexico to later become the, quote, god of the Toltecs, because of all the new knowledge he instilled. The most remarkable thing about this story is that some say it was precisely because of these physical characteristics and the golden glow of his armor and clothing that the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortez was mistaken for a god. Ah! 
uh, <laughs> you know, there is a part of me that can be excited about Vikings and Aztecs trading knowledge. But even that, you know, I'm just choosing right. to be excited. Right. <laughs> Tracy, these stories keep going back and forth between being so intense in terms of, like, you know, the giant figure was ripped apart and became uh -huh. trees versus this real-life man came and committed murder. Yes. Like, Both of those things are part of this. <laughs> yes. W was Quetzalcoatl worshipped in some areas being okay with human sacrifice and in other areas not or is he do we i think do we i know? think that is the case i think it was there are aztec stories of him not liking human sacrifice but mm -hmm. i don't know how much of that is the aztec civilization putting a stop to human sacrifice or later people rewriting their own history to seem less brutal with what was considered okay at the time of the writing i'm not sure or or even different areas mm -hmm. having very different feelings about it, then it, then it's kind of a culture war. Yes. Huh. So, are you ready for my story? Mm, no, because the time at which it is appearing in this episode makes me nervous. <laughs> There's nothing to be nervous about, I promise. I'm not going to do anything too horrible to you. Okay, you're not going to break my heart today. <laughs> no, no, not today. Hello. This is Dr. Isabella Richardson recording on the findings at DIG site 2841-3. We are working at our site in Hidalgo, Mexico, formerly the location of the city of Tolan. We've been given permission to dig this site in association with the local university as part of their Cultural Heritage Protection Program. Myself and my team believe that there may be some artifacts from the late 15th to the early 16th century located just underneath a rock formation nearby. This is because a few pieces of pottery were recently found by some children playing in the field. I was able to date the pieces and secure a grant to explore this area more. I'm documenting our findings here now on this recording, but I will have my fellow researchers inspect the findings when we return from the site. A full review will be available on the university's website after we've completed the dig. So far, we found an arrowhead, one pottery fragment, and a bone needle. However, while digging on the northeastern side of the site yesterday, Dr. Sanchez and her assistant Alex found a remarkable discovery. Three stone tablets which were almost entirely intact. We couldn't make out very much at first given the state of the tablets, but once we were able to clean them off, we began to read them. The cleaning process is slow and we can only read what we've cleaned, but what we found so far is stunning with the potential to change our perception of the Spanish conquistadors and their interactions with the Aztec people. Each stone tablet is approximately 8 by 13 inches, 20 by 30 centimeters, with carved writing in Nahuatl, the language spoken by the Aztec Empire. They appear to detail a remarkable story about the first introduction between Montezuma and Hernán Cortés. They say... It is a long-held belief that the god Quetzalcoatl himself would return one day upon our shores. He sailed away many years ago with the promise that one day he would return to us and bring great prosperity. He would be known to us as a large, pale man in shining armor fit only for a god himself. We who write this down are proud to announce the return of Quetzalcoatl to our shores this very day. Our leader, the great Montezuma himself, greeted the god upon the shores as the sun crested over the horizon. 
Matazuma stood upon the shores and spoke to the god thusly. You have graciously come on earth. You have graciously approached your water, your high place of Mexico. You have come down to your mat, your throne, which I have briefly kept for you, I who used to keep it for you. You have graciously arrived. You have known pain. You have known weariness. Now come on to the earth, take your rest, enter into your palace, rest your limbs. May our lords come on earth. We, the people of Montezuma, welcome this new age of peace and prosperity brought to us by Quetzalcoatl himself. After this section, the words become mostly illegible. There are some writings describing a meal they shared with Quetzalcoatl, and a few more physical descriptions of the god. However, these physical descriptions, one of which says he has a hooked nose, bear a striking resemblance to known portraits of Hernan Cortez. While it's still too early to say anything official, I believe my team may have found the first recorded evidence of contemporary writing describing the Aztec people seeing Cortez for the first time, and their belief in him as Quetzalcoatl. If we are able to verify these findings, then we may have just rewritten history as we know it. So for now, this is Dr. Isabella Richardson signing off on the reports for today, with the hope that I will bring more news soon. Tracy? <laughs> Did I break you I a have, little bit? <laughs> I have been on the edge of my seat. I have had to cover my mouth. I need to know right now how much of that is based on truth. Okay. Right now. All right. So it's a complicated question because is it based on things people have said? Yes. Were those things probably lies written years after the actual scenario happened? Also, yes. Okay. So let's dig into it. Much of the idea of Cortez being seen as a deity can be traced back to the Florentine Codex written down some oh. 50 years after the conquest. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of feelings about the Florentine Codex. Yes. So basically, to, we'll dive into it in detail a little bit more, but it's most, almost 100% certain the Spanish really pushed this narrative and it used it to explain why it was just so easy to take over and conquer the Aztecs, which it wasn't. And they, the, the, I mentioned that triple alliance earlier. There was three cities that kind of formed a single alliance and they put up a big fight against Cortez the whole way through. I am so embarrassed to say that because I grew up with the DreamWorks film Road to El Dorado uh -huh. that has the figure of Cortez, yeah. I am picturing this only in the animation style of that movie. That's totally fair. so <laughs> frustrating. Honestly, you don't need to give him any, like, don't give him any benefits. He was a murderer. No. Oh, my God. Yeah. No. <laughs> also, I'm so sorry, but while I've interrupted you... I have a lot of feelings about the Florentine Codex because I learned about it while doing research to fake justify in a tweet, like with fake history, a previous tweet uh -huh. where I said <laughs> that we all need to mansplain to the men that females is actually pronounced females. Oh, that's so funny. And so I used real quotes from the Florentine Codex. To then, like, mansplain it? That is so funny. <laughs> but I could only use real quotes from the Florentine Codex because it's absolutely an infuriating thing. Oh, 100%. So that was where 
we see the idea of Cortez being received as a deity. In that codex, the description of the first meeting between Montezuma, which also Montezuma can be spelled Montezuma, Moctezuma. There's a, a bunch of different ways of saying it. I've always said Montezuma, so that's what I'll be saying here. Feel free to write in and tell me your preferred way of pronouncing his name. The first meeting between Montezuma and Cortez is described as Montezuma giving a prepared speech in classical oratorial Nahuatl, a speech which they say contains declarations of divine or near-divine admiration as described in my story. I actually pulled translations of that exact speech for the story. That quote that I wrote was from a translation of Montezuma's speech. But Montezuma's speech as described by the Spanish describing their colonization. Yes. So... (sighs) Subtleties in and an imperfect scholarly understanding of high Nahuatl rhetorical style make the exact intent of these comments tricky to ascertain. But some historians argue that Montezuma's politely offering his throne to Cortez, if he ever even gave the speech in the first place, might have meant the exact opposite of what we today take it to mean. Politeness in Aztec culture was a way to assert dominance and a show of superiority. I'm so glad you t- oh, mm. okay so yeah let's let's say the Spanish wrote this and it's all their own fictions to feel good about themselves right. the conquistadors um they're actually writing like the world's best fiction about how wonderful the Aztec people are because yes. can you think of anything more brave or kind than being hospitable and uh, that gives you so much power. Kindness gives you so much power. It absolutely does. I think it was, it might have been Ben Franklin. It could have been someone else who says the best way that they knew to get someone to like them instantly was to ask a small favor of them. Oh, well, there's a huge psychology behind that, uh-huh. right? Where uh-huh. actually to bond with people, especially your friends, you do have to let your friends do kind things to help you. She said to herself a thousand times this week. Um <laughs> Yes. I cannot. Tracy, you really buried the lead. I am beside myself. I had to save this for I had to give you all the context before I could then dive into these things because it's so interesting. There are some scholars who maintain the view that the Aztec Empire's fall may be attributed in part to their belief in Cortez as the returning Quetzalcoatl. However, a majority of Mesoamericanist scholars, such as Matthew Restall, James Lockhart, Susan D. Gillespie, Camilla Townsend, Louise Burkhart, Michael Grawlich, Michael E. Smith, and many others consider the Quetzalcoatl and Cortez myth as one of many myths about the Spanish conquest which have risen in the early post-conquest period. Myth in this scenario meaning falsehood. Falsehood, exactly. Ultimately, the legend that Montezuma and the Aztecs believed Cortez to be Quetzalcoatl was just that, a legend retroactively turned into a historical fact by Spanish writers. These writers may have misinterpreted a speech Montezuma gave to Cortez or simply invented the idea because it fit their historical expectations. However, the legend of Quetzalcoatl didn't stop when Cortez arrived. The myth surrounding this feathered serpent god continued through the centuries. The friar Diego de Duran suggested that Quetzalcoatl may have actually been the apostle St. Thomas. Shut your mouth oh yeah 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 his theory was the saint had departed from the roman empire following the death of christ and duran believed his travels across the sea could explain the elements of the aztec religion that mirrored 
Christianity. Christianity, stop doing that! I know! You'll see something later on, too, that's another example of a religion that loves God being like, oh, we're just going to take this for ourselves. This thing that is its own unique culture, we're just going to take it. But before we get to that, I have a tangent on language. Oh, thank goodness. And sorry I told you to shut your mouth. I was actually telling the friar to oh, shut yeah, his uh, mouth, but then I realized how that's <laughs> I didn't even hesitate. I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> Christianity, stop. So, NAWA, or the Polish National Agency for Academic Exchange, which I have to imagine in Polish does translate to NAWA, but <laughs> NAWA right? has an article about the language Nahuatl and its cultural relevance today. Again, for the hundredth time, Nahuatl is the language spoken by the Aztec people. Nawa, the organization, does a lot of language research, and Dr. Justinia Olko, in particular, focuses on endangered languages. According to Nawa, quote, an international research group led by Professor Justinia Olko from the University of Warsaw studied the centuries-long history of Nahuatl, which has changed under the influence of the Spanish language and culture. Nahuatl used to be the language of the Aztec Empire. It is from Nahuatl that we borrowed the words chili, avocado, and chocolate. Today, it is an endangered indigenous language in Mexico. Funded by a grant from the European Research Council, the project entitled Europe and America in Contact, a multidisciplinary study of cross-culture transfer in the new world across time, focused on the history and the mechanisms of change in Nahuatl. The research was mainly carried out in the states of Tlaxcala and Veracruz, where numerous Nahuas, descendants of the Aztecs, still live. The findings show that Nahuatl did not change as much as it is commonly believed. Its modern speakers are able to read texts from the 16th century. According to official estimates, modern Nahuatl is spoken by approximately 1.5 million Mexicans. These are mostly elderly people living in small, scattered communities. Professor Olko specializes in ethnohistory, anthropology, and sociolinguistics with a special focus on the cultures and histories of Mesoamerica. She's actively involved in the revitalization of endangered languages, including Nahuatl and minority languages in Poland. She believes that in some aspects, Nahuatl gradually became more similar to Spanish. It absorbed many Spanish words. Structural changes also took place, altering the typological profile of the language. Yet Nahuatl remained in a fairly good condition until recently. Paradoxically, five centuries of colonization contributed to its extinction less than the processes of the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. The 19th century brought the notion of the nation-state with one language and one coherent culture. Minority and indigenous languages as well as their users became subject to discrimination and were perceived as an obstacle to modernization. There were even instances of deliberate linguicide by means of a compulsory transition of indigenous children to the dominant languages. Such practices were common in Mexico, but also elsewhere. Language death is a natural process, but it was in the 20th century that it drastically gained momentum. A considerable number of minority language users have experienced marginalization and discrimination because of their heritage language. People who have a worse command of the dominant language are considered less educated and have fewer opportunities to find a good job. Certainly, this process cannot be completely reversed or contained. Still, modern states are beginning to realize that linguistic and ethnic diversity are assets that deserve protection, 
e.g. by introducing minority languages into schools, but this is not enough, end quote. Elsewhere, indigenous Mexico writes that, quote, Mexico's many mountain ranges tend to split the country into countless smaller valleys, each forming a world of its own. Over the last few thousand years, this has been a factor in the differentiation of a wide range of indigenous Mexican languages. Within these many little worlds, there are 11 linguistic families, and according to the National Institute of Indigenous Languages, Within these linguistic families, 68 languages and 364 dialects are spoken, with Nahuatl being the most commonly spoken at around roughly 1.5 million people speaking the language as of the 2010 census, end quote. They also explain that the popular term Aztec has been used as an all-inclusive term to describe both the Aztec Empire and its people. Professor Michael E. Smith, an anthropologist from the University of New York, uses the term Aztec Empire to describe, quote, the empire of the Triple Alliance in which Tenochtitlan played a dominant role. Mexico City now sits on the foundation of the city formerly known as Tenochtitlan. I feel as if you gave me, like, the snuggly blanket of language to comfort me after absolutely riling me up (laughs) (laughs) i just went on this tangent researching i just fell down this rabbit hole of reading about the nahuatl language and people researching Mm -hmm. because it it came out of writing my story i was like oh well let me just research a little bit about the language that they spoke for you know the the idea of this person finding this tablet Mm -hmm. oh and then i just went off yeah i for listeners tracy and i talk about language a lot. It's so interesting. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you are much better with language than I am. Um, but just the idea of all of these different dialects and l- linguistic families. Mm-hmm. And every time that I'm reminded that people in the world now speak languages that have been alive for so long. The fact that people who speak Nahuatl now can read 16th century tablets? I couldn't read a 16th century papyrus. The handwriting wouldn't make sense. The writing would be hard to comprehend. Is the written language taught as well? Uh, yeah. I think now they're starting to make it written and spoken and everything. That makes me so happy. My greatest shame is that I don't speak multiple languages. Same. Um, it was so cool. And, and the article that I was reading, I again, couldn't include it because I had to stop somewhere, but it had all these charts showing all the different endangered and minority languages in Mexico and how many people spoke them. And mm. Nahuatl was the the largest by far at around 21%. But it was really cool to look through all the different languages and, and see that. And it had all the different census datas to show when they collected their information and how it changed over the years. I, I went on a whole like hour-long research hole that ended up not even – I couldn't fit it in the episode. (laughs) I wonder if they have as much trouble with their census as we have with ours in the U.S. Oh, I'm sure. It makes me just wish I could go back in time and grab someone from thousands of years ago and be like, just so you know, all these cool things that you did are still alive. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. Could you imagine me like in thousands of years? You'll still have this here. Ugh. I sometimes wish I could do that, like go to Sappho and be like, you have no idea the impact you're going to have. Ugh. Okay. According to the Book of Mormon, the resurrected Jesus Christ descended from heaven and visited the people of the American continent shortly after his resurrection. 
Some followers of the Latter-day Saints movement believe that Quetzalcoatl was historically Jesus Christ, but believe his name and the details of the event were gradually lost over time. The third president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, John Taylor, born in 1808, died in 1887, believed that Quetzalcoatl was Jesus Christ. Taylor wrote that, quote, the story of the life of the Mexican divinity Quetzalcoatl closely resembles that of the Savior. So closely indeed that we can come to no other conclusion than that Quetzalcoatl and Christ are the same thing. End quote. However, Quetzalcoatl is not a religious symbol in the Latter-day Saint faith and is not taught as such, nor is it in their doctrine that Quetzalcoatl is Jesus. Latter-day Saint author Brant Gardner investigated the link between Quetzalcoatl and Jesus and ultimately concluded that the association amounts to nothing more than folklore. So, I guess they just need to leave this culture's religion and practices alone instead of co-opting them into their own religion and saying it's the same. Why is it always your God is our Jesus Christ and not our Jesus Christ is your God? (laughs) (laughs) It's never, oh no, wait, our religion is younger than yours, huh? Let's let's think about how maybe we came from you, and we should be uh, kind for starters, but also learning from you. Mm-hmm. I know it's that one. I had to. So I gave you this. So the last two things I have today are about dinosaurs and Terry Pratchett. Thank the gods. <laughs> the pterosaur Quetzalcoatlus nothropy was named after Quetzalcoatl. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, because didn't the dinosaurs have feathers? Yes, they did. (laughs) Not all of them, but many of them did have feathers. Quetzalcoatlus stood nearly 10 feet tall, roughly 3 meters, and had a wingspan of at least 36 feet or around 11 meters. So he was a, think of a pterodactyl, like pterosaur, so the kind of bird dinosaur. I have a picture here for Rowan to look at and describe to you that shows a human, a Quetzalcoatlus Northropy, and then uh, Quetzalcoatlus. It says Quetzalcoatlus sp. I guess it's another uh, another one of the species. It's Quetzalcoatl little boy and Quetzalcoatl big daddy. Big daddy. (laughs) Sorry, Quetzalcoatlus. It's it's a dinosaur. Quetzalcoatlus big daddy and Quetzalcoatlus little boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's its scientific name now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hope someone has made space. (laughs) <laughs> space planes uh spaceships look like these dinosaurs right. in this some silhouette? story can you imagine a spaceship with this silhouette it's incredible just know that in this image we have these really cool dinosaur figures and what a very large cockroach or palmetto bug would be to you uh humans are to big daddy and what a house cat, a big ass house cat, or a or a mid sized dog would be to you, uh, a human is to little boy. Quetzalcoatlus northropi, the the big daddy. You could turn a human sideways and fit two of them in one side of its wings. You know that like uh, humans could crawl through the arteries of a gray whale's yeah. heart. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so glad you did this because I, as Rowan and n- not necessarily I as a researcher, like me as feelings, mm-hmm. so deeply loves the idea of dragons coming from people finding dinosaur bones. Um, I know. Everything in me loves that 
for European dragon mythology. Mm-hmm. And hearing about Quetzalcoatl and his snake feathers. Mm-hmm. It, I just wanted it so bad and you gave it to me. Thank you. I'm so happy. <laughs> the last thing I have to give to you is that Sir Terry Pratchett's novel, Eric, included a parody of Quetzalcoatl in the form of a demon named Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl was described as being half man, half chicken, half jaguar, half serpent, half scorpion, and half mad for a total of three homicidal maniacs. <laughs> Which I just think, again, is so funny. I love Terry Pratchett's humor. I had to include that. I love the idea of describing something as half this, half this, half this, half this, half this, and half this. It's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Terry Pratchett. I keep forgetting to call him Sir. Sir. Sir Terry, Terry Pratchett. Pratchett. <laughs> So that is all that I have for you on Quetzalcoatl, the great Mesoamerican serpent god who is still a figure today. I I owe you an apology. I kept interrupting you because I was so excited. No apology needed. It was great. You did a stellar job. Thank you. I was so giddy to learn. And I, my long con of trying to get you to be the person who researched for this episode finally worked. <laughs> and I'm so grateful. I'm glad, too. I had so much fun researching this. All right. You have delivered thus far. Tracy, tell me something good. Okay. My something good is actually a song slash album that Jamie showed me yesterday. I think she even sent it to you, Rowan. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. The album is called Bimbo Core by Scene Mm -hmm. Queen. It is bimbo metal music. Really good. Specifically, the song Pink Rover I've been playing on repeat. If you're on the internet, you probably know that song uh, and you should listen to the whole album. It's incredible. The whole thing is so good. So, Bimbo Core by Scene Queen, specifically the song Pink Rover is my something good this week. Jamie has the best taste in music. Anytime she recommends something to me, I instantly favorite it on mm-hmm. Spotify and I have never been let down. Absolutely. So, now, Rowan, it's your turn. To tell me something good. Oh, goodness me. Um, Yeah, my something good just has to be the absolute insane luck uh, and and wealth of good people I have in my life. Um, A lot of my friends um, who are, are women really stepped up to the plate because they are they have had horrible experiences themselves, and I hate that they were educated in that way, but I had so many women who, like, knew what to do and took charge and were strong and badass mm-hmm. when I couldn't be, including you. Um, and, you know, my parents, really, I'm yeah. very lucky, are so awesome. And I had – this makes me so happy. I had a couple of guys in my life be like – let me use my power mm-hmm. of guy to guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel so incredibly grateful. And that is not enough. Like, those words are not enough. And it is very unfortunate that that is the case because this is a podcast and all we do is words. As as someone who is very close with you, I can say the words are enough. I mean, everyone who's doing all these things aren't doing it for their own sake. They're doing it because we all love you and we want to step up for you, especially in a time where you can't really step up for yourself. And all I can say is that being across the country sucks. 
because I can't do as much <laughs> as I want, but I will on this podcast shout out Kaylee Bray for being one of the most incredible mm-hmm. people in the world. What a mama bear. Yeah. We love Kaylee. I mean, I can't say enough good things. And Daphne Olive. Of the Fathoms Deep podcast. Incredible people. Yeah. Superheroes absolutely exist. I have had that confirmed for me by my friends. That is yes. 100% true. Um, my friend Amanda, again, you, my parents, mm-hmm. my dad. <laughs> yeah. Talk about deserving our moms. I don't know that I deserved my dad yeah. and all of his amazing work this week. And I just, boy, has it been uh, 365 days in seven. Um, it truly has been. It's been a year of a week for you. It's going to continue to be weird. So podcast friends, it's going to keep being weird over here. And I thank you in advance for bearing with us. We are held together currently, by we I mean me, uh, by Tracy and Tracy alone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Tracy is held together by um, duct tape, glue, and and good thoughts. So (laughs) if things sound a little funky over the next few episodes or our schedule is a little wonky, please know that this podcast is a huge priority for us and we're doing everything we can to get good quality episodes out to you. So if we just reach a point where the episodes aren't the quality that we need them to be, we might skip a week or two. But we love all of you. And for those who are on our Discord, we're still talking to you there as much as we can. And it's actually worth saying now, I think, because an 18-year-old asked us how we were doing our life and I have been thinking about that nonstop. It's just... Tracy and I went into 2022 with that, this is our year Mm -hmm. energy. And when I tell you, it has not been that uh, for either of us. (laughs) It has not been our year. And it has been a real lesson in humility um, and learning how to rely on people and also understanding that perseverance is more important in a lot of ways than this kind of excellence we had imagined and success can what success means to you can change and that's okay and what you want from your life can change and that's okay yeah and i think we were like you know pandemics wrapping up 2022 is it and 2022 i think for me I can Mm -hmm. only speak for myself, has been the hardest yet. Oh, 100%. I agree completely. I just don't know what, like, the summation of my life at the moment, like, the writing. Like, if you were going to be like, Rowan walked down the hallway with her curly hair, like, writing that out, (laughs) what that would look like. And I have been told by the whole world, Mm -hmm. I guess, (laughs) That it is just my friends. The summation of my life is being so lucky for the people that are in it. All right, Rowan, hopefully this is a nice balm to your soul. I pulled a five-star review for you to read. Oh, thank God. (laughs) All right. Um, (laughs) Like a good cup of coffee on an early rainy morning. I look forward to these amazing storytellers' episodes every week, and like a good cup of coffee on a rainy Sunday morning, I savor every minute of their siren song. From the unbiased and detailed research to the beautifully written stories, you can just feel the passion these two ladies have for their stories. I will never forget where I was when I heard Tracy's poem on episode 58 
smelly a smell of garum. It still gives me goosebumps and a place for me to go when I feel my feminist rage bubbling beneath the surface. Five stars isn't enough credit for the experience I look forward to each week. Now, like a good listener, I will slowly back away, not make direct eye contact, and stop perceiving you while you digest this review. Thank you, ladies. Stephanie F. I have an acting degree for the sole purpose of being able to read and cry at the same time. (laughs) Thank you, Stephanie. Rowan is getting very genuinely emotional, so I'll talk for us. We are what we are because of all of you and getting to hear the impact that we have on you or that the the way we can be a small part of your lives makes every minute of hard work worth it. And reviews like this are what really help motivate us when times are tough. Very nice. And thank you. <laughs> and thank you for joining us today. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash. And our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. He elevated the once low-level sun guad. Sun guad? Sun guad. <laughs> What's my son, Guad? (laughs) Just a little baby. Maybe my little baby son, Guad.